0: This is the Wandering Dairy Center podcast. I am Brian. On The other side is Alex. What's up, everyone? Um, so my iPhone, I think I have a 6, 6S, something like that. Um, it's a work phone. And its I've had it for over two years, so I'm, I'm due for a new one soon. Mm-hmm. So I took it out of the case that I've had it in for those two years, because mm-hmm. I like to, you know, the, the phone as designed, it's... it's it's oh, a sleek.
1: You know, I'm in that camp. I don't, yeah, I don't absolutely. rock the case.
0: Yeah. Um, but similar, I'm assuming, to you uh, and probably a lot of people, my phone out of its case is at high risk of me throwing it across the room.
1: I dropped mine yesterday.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I bring this up is because while it's sleek and nice looking and it's all black and cool. Mm hmm. It seems like one of the design features that they put right at the top of the list was let's make every surface of the phone as slippery as possible.
1: Yeah, I don't like the 6 and beyond for that exact reason. The
0: the SE and,
1: you know, the 5 and stuff that I have, it's got squared off edges so you can hold on to
0: it. I, this thing slips out of pockets like it's its job. Yeah, I don't understand yeah, why they did so. that. But it's so nice to have it. It's so thin and light without the case on it. Like, I, I mean, that's They're... how it's
1: designed to be used. Right. Apple right. sells cases. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure there's a an image somewhere on the internet if you look around. Um, Steve Jobs' like iPhone 5 or something like that, or 4S, and it's all like, you know, he used it without a case, and it's got as many battle scars as any phone yeah that would have without one. I don't know. I don't mind. Like, mine right now, I'm looking at it. Um, all the corners are, you know, chipped or bashed in a little bit or something <laughs> like that, but is you know, no cracks, so that's cool.
0: Yeah, the, only... the Battle Scars, I don't, I don't really mind. It's, yeah. it's the, yeah, it's the cracking of the screen.
1: Sure, that... that's a problem. And I make sure I keep my camera scratch-free because that's important to me, but other than that, I like the Battle Scars on it. Except for... When one of the chips causes the screen to kind of push in a little bit and, like, Ooh. not be... Yeah. Because the way that... It's kind of like a clamshell design. If you undo the screws on the bottom, the screen lifts off. Right. So, um, they're not all watertight. This one, anyway, is not watertight and sealed up like some of the newer ones.
0: I don't think yours does this, but another drawback of the case is that the edge of the phone... The edge of the screen, rather, mm-hmm. is is a part of the control of the phone. When you, yeah. if you swipe from the very absolute edge, you get a different result than if you, in certain situations, than if you do otherwise. So, when it's in the case, you can't actually get to the edge in the way that the phone was designed.
1: Yeah, yep, yeah. No, this one so, has, you know, certain times when you, yeah, agreed. Phones that are dumb.
0: <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's uh, fun to have. First world problem, though, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Especially cuz I don't pay for my phone, so I should shut up. Do you think you
1: would take care of that phone differently if it was something you bought as opposed to your company?
0: Um, no, because certainly at first I treat them uh, equally, you know, try to protect them as much as possible. Yep. Um, but then this one's 2 years old and I would be due for a quote upgrade. Mm. Um anyway, so I'm equally, clum- I'm equally clumsy.
1: Yeah. Sometimes it amazes me how much people go through phones, like how disposable some people think, well, not think they are, but treat them. Um,
0: like, Yeah, they got all those precious metals in them. They're not.
1: <laughs> yeah, we talked about that. Recycle that shit. But if you spend some time on the Apple subreddit, you see some pretty kind of weird behavior collections With of old phones, co- right? Collections of phones and people having multiple phones and switching phones every 4 months and it's a waste of money in my opinion, but every 4 months, wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like the last iteration last year, um, you know, they released the iPhone 10 and the 8 at the same time. There's plenty of people that have experienced both or all three versions or whatever. You know, oh, I bought the 10, I didn't really like it, so 2 months in, I Bought the other one too.
0: If that's, that's where you want to spend your money, I guess. Hey,
1: can't nobody's, you know, in control of that other than you.
0: All right, let's, uh, let's jump into it here. I'm ready. Um, what do you got? So, my topic for this week is weather manipulation. Humans, weather manipulation. Yeah, humans All attempt right. at, uh, humanity's attempt, I suppose, at. You know, controlling the weather. Yeah. So it was funny. Um, I had a different topic that I had been preparing earlier in the week. Okay. And then I read an article on Thursday. Nice. And I was, and it, it I'll bring it up in a minute. And I was like, oh, this is way better <laughs> than what I was. I actually,
1: doing. I actually had that experience this week too. My, so, my plan was to ahead. do something different, and then I changed it. Um, yeah. Somewhere along the line.
0: Yeah, so on Thursday I was uh, scrambling to, uh, to become familiar with a different thing. Um, so yeah, weather manipulation. Um, go through a little bit of history. It's uh, it's pretty funny. What um, it's totally up for debate. I'll say right off the bat, nobody is really convinced. There's certainly some good evidence that it works, or some certain strategies work, but then. Mm-hmm. A lot of scientists and whatnot are like, no, it's all luck. So well,
1: not to jump ahead too far, I'm sure you'll talk about it, but don't they force it to rain in like yeah, uh, cloud, Dubai and stuff?
0: Cloud seeding. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So the the thing though, well,
1: which is pretty you know obvious if that's working or not. It's either it rained or it didn't.
0: I said the same thing, and and but there's still people who are like, it's. I guess that one, that it's one, not raining. <laughs> yeah. go out there. And I, if you got wet, it's probably raining. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, for me, it's, it's a recent, like from like 1990 and forward is when it really has been really seriously advanced. Okay. Um, cause it's only been a thing since like 1891. Um, well, the sort of the modern form of, of what we'll talk about has only been a really a thing since 1891. Um, I don't yeah, know the what ju- the scope of what,
1: you know, the manipulation is, but that seems much older than I would expect. It seems, it seems like a very sci-fi topic. of
0: t- it, Yeah, it is, especially one of the methods. Um, but it kind of took a s- similar path, as I imagine, some other technologies. A guy named Luis Gaffman uh, mm-hmm. in 1891 sort of thought of the idea and came up with the initial theory. But it took till 1946 for things to actually okay. start. Yeah. Yeah. See what you're saying. So, of course, magical and religious practices to control the weather are kind of a, a thing in, in human culture for a long time. And controlling mm-hmm. the weather has always has been a thing. Um, there were a lot of practices in ancient India. I mean, a lot of cultures, but ancient India was one specifically that I found um, where they had rituals they could try to bring sudden bursts of rainfall, the starved Mm -hmm. regions, Um, the Finnish people were believed by others in ancient times to be able to control the weather. And as a result, Vikings refused to take Finnish people on ocean-going raids because they were just worried about whatever, you know, the superstitions of, of the time. Um, remnants of this superstition lasted until the modern era, where like certain ship crews just were like, "No, if you're finished, you can't, you can't come on board." Hmm. Yeah, kind of weird.
1: There's probably um, also like, um, I'm not up to speed on Greek mythology, but various gods of weather conditions, like rain, oh yeah, Poseidon
0: and, and... and oh yeah, yeah. There's a god for everything in in that god type of, clouds. of, of yeah. Um, but we're not going to focus too much on, on the ancient stuff. I just wanted to acknowledge that, you know, we've been trying to do this. I mean, there's a reason there's a term called rain dances because people really did try to dance and, and pe- perform rituals to get it to rain. And I always wondered, like, mm-hmm. what sort of loops were people, mental loops were people jumping themselves through to, like, associate, yeah, John did the dance on Tuesday and it rained on Thursday. So that's pretty good. We'll We'll call that. We'll call that a positive result, but if it rained on Friday, does that still, is that still good? I don't know. That's a,
1: that's tough. I mean, I feel like if you try hard enough, you can tie any event back to what caused it to rain.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, so cloud seeding, we'll jump into, uh, sort of the meat of it all, um, Cloud seeding is the process of dispersing some sort of substance into the air and specifically Mm -hmm. into the existing clouds in order to get them to condense and then either form ice crystals or rain or or whatever. Okay. So in 1891, Luis Gaffman um, basically came up with the idea. I didn't really find exactly how he just came, sort of stated that shooting liquid carbon dioxide into rain clouds could cause them to rain. I didn't really find what the inspiration for this was, but um, later on, while researching aircraft icing, General Electric's Vincent Schaefer and Irving Langmuir confirmed the theory. They discovered the principle of cloud seeding, July 1946, through a series of, of just serendipitous events. Um, they were climbing Mount Washington in New Hampshire, and they we're just talking and, and whatnot and they created a way or they thought of a way to experiment with super cooling clouds and using deep freeze units to stimulate the growth of ice crystals. Mm-hmm. And also just like came up with the idea of just like, let's just put stuff in the air for those ice crystals to form around everything from table salt to talcum powder to just dirt. Um, huh. Okay. Yeah. Then one hot and humid July, in 1946, while at the GE's Schenectady Research Lab, I know where they that is. <laughs> they, um, they were in the, the GE's deep freezer, and it just wasn't cold enough to get what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And so he threw a chunk of dry ice into the experiment. And as soon as he introduced his breath into the freezer, he noticed the haze and the ice crystals forming uh-huh. and and sort of things started to take off. Um, so that basically gave him a way, or the dry ice, he discovered a way that he could change supercooled water into ice crystals with the dry ice. Hmm. Um, and then he was able to replicate that experiment a number of times and he found... Um... So did he need something for the ice crystals to form
1: on this time? I'm a little hung up on that because... I don't know
0: cloud dynamics too well, but his breath, as I understand the story, his breath for that one, for the sort of the discovery, the aha moment of, of how, uh, sort of the spontaneous forming of the ice crystals. Yeah. The dry being in the super cooled freezer already mm-hmm. with water that was in still in a liquid state. Uh, when he introduced the dry ice, that, initial or i'm sorry that extra boost from the dry ice Mm -hmm. takes the already super cooled water and and freezes it instantly and i guess i guess in this case just the particulate matter that probably was on his breath oh so it wasn't Uh,
1: his breath crystallizing itself like the moisture in his breath
0: well yeah no the moisture in his breath i think was Mm -hmm. um so i guess yeah in that sense there isn't a particulate matter necessarily involved unless there's Mm -hmm. dust in the air um but I think also in that case, there was already ice crystals in his breath. Um, and so those just grew larger. Whereas with certain clouds, I think, well, I guess clouds by definition are just collections of water. I don't know, that's a good question. I guess in this sense, it doesn't seem like he needed a, a sort of catalyst.
1: Yeah, because I mean, if it, in a natural cloud, I mean, I suppose there's there could be particulates in the air. It's probably not. you know, pure air, whatever that is. Um, so, maybe that's needed for ice crystals to form naturally as well. I don't know. We need a, uh, an expert here.
0: Well, I bet if we went down to SUNY Albany, we could probably find out because the next leg of the story is that a professor, Henry Chesson from SUNY Albany and this guy, Dr. Bernard Vonnegut, they, um, were working with this other guy, Schaefer, who was in the freezer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> um, they were the ones, these other guys, uh, Bernard uh, Vongutt, maybe is how you say that, and Henry, um, they were the ones to come up with, they started mixing different chemicals together to get silver iodide, which will end up being the one of the better catalysts that they put into these clouds to get it all going. Interesting, um, And actually plays the role of the dry ice i suppose
1: mm-hmm.
0: anyway getting a little into the weeds here so i just i thought that was really cool because one where this all took place yeah that's that's is I had no idea obviously relevant for us uh-huh. um, and so yeah that the whole idea of cloud seeding these uh, ultimately the combination so the dry ice and the spontaneous forming eventually they figured out that silver iodide can serve sort of in that earth of those roles and they end up getting Mm -hmm. a patent in uh, 1975 Um, okay and then let me see so then they tested this Um, so they were (laughs) they dumped uh we're jumping back now sorry from 1975 back to 1946 one of the first actual sort of i guess successful attempts at cloud seeding was um they took a plane up and they dumped six pounds of dry ice into a cloud that was sixty miles from the Schenectady County Airport, and um, were able to get it rain, get it to rain within like a half an hour of doing that.
1: So, what does that look like? Dump?
0: I mean, did they like? Well, there's all kinds. There's all kinds of methods to get the. Um... You can't just drop chunks of dry ice. No, literally. I mean, it's powder. No, that's that's kind of it. It's amazing, actually. Like They'll fire canisters from the ground with mm-hmm. like st- that will explode and send dust clouds of, of whatever, silver iodide or yeah. dust or well, you know, sure. whatever. That makes sense. So the dry ice, I imagine they just chopped it up into... Uh, fine enough pieces. Fine enough pieces. Because, yeah. I mean, it, as long as it falls through the cloud... Right,
1: some of it probably falls
0: the dry ice through to is the able ground. To, but... Right, the dry ice is able to be the catalyst for the spontaneous forming of the... Or the further crystallization of the water, I suppose, to get it to, yeah. to start falling.
1: What a, I mean, imagine nineteen forty-six explaining to somebody what you're doing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't think it uh Yeah, we, we got up in a plane and we we took this bucket of dry ice and we <laughs> threw it at threw it at this cloud and then it rained half an hour. And night. then it rained. <laughs> uh sure. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's sort of the, the origin of cloud seeding, which which I thought was, was neat. Um, so yeah, like I said, silver iodide, potassium iodide, and dry ice are the most common chemicals that are used. Mm -hmm. Liquid propane has also been used. And then also regular table salt also apparently can work. Um, you can either drop it into the clouds with a plane or fire it from the ground, which is, I I don't know that one. I want to know what that looks like.
1: So how is this used, you know, effectively? Cuz I guess when I think of things like this, you know, the saying there's no free lunch. So by shooting this stuff into the clouds and taking water vapor, I guess you're just taking surrounding water vapor and condensing it to form it, you know, the exactly. rain. That Exactly. I guess it just wouldn't have formed otherwise. It would have just stayed dispersed.
0: Yeah, you're you're focusing the moisture that's in the system already mm-hmm. and you're just focusing it quicker and on a, you know, on a more controlled point, you, they're not adding any moisture to the system.
1: Right. So what's the, what's the drawback? You know, what are uh, you?
0: Oh, um, I mean, you're just, I guess you you're just getting rain to fall in a spot that it wouldn't otherwise fall or you're taking rain away from an area where it was going to fall.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I don't think there's actually, I, there were some concerns about, you know, what the leftover silver iodide or whatever might mm-hmm. do. But um, a couple articles that I was reading, or the one at least that spoke to this, uh, the research didn't really support that it was dangerous.
1: Okay. So, now this making it so if in like Dubai or whatever, if I'm going to make a rain, that's better than just, you, you know using water in whatever areas that I want it to rain on. If I'm trying to get, you know, soil to be fertilized or something, or not fertilized, but, you know.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, so the moisture that's going over Dubai, mm-hmm. that is, would have normally passed over Just and passed continued, over. Yeah. continued on in whatever direction, they're mm-hmm. basically capturing it and forcing it to fall where they yeah. want it to. Mm-hmm. And that, I guess, is taking away moisture from wherever that was going to go.
1: Right. Somewhere further down the line is not Some, getting right. rain anymore. Right. At right. least sometimes.
0: Um, in 2010, there was a, a, an electronic mechanism that they were testing. Basically, an infrared laser pulse was... They tried to use that. Um, didn't really work too well, though. <laughs> so how, it's still I can't a f- even
1: think of how that would work.
0: Yeah. I didn't research that one too much. Um, okay. It didn't, it didn't really seem to make too much sense. And it, it immediately they were like, yeah, it didn't really work. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like I said, it's still up for debate whether or not this yields good results, despite the fact that a lot of countries, some, it, it, you know, use some form of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the National Academy of Science failed to find statistically significant evidence to support cloud seeding. In 2010, the Tel Aviv University, which is going to be in Israel a place where you might want to use cloud seeding, the Middle East, yep. um, and where they do. They said it's ineffective. Um, but then other people, just as as late as 2016, or I'm sorry, as recent as 2016, said that technology has improved in those six years, mm-hmm. that it is viable. So um, this guy claimed, this guy, Jeff Tilly, from the Desert Research Institute in Reno, claimed that he could increase rainfall by 10%. Uh, where? In Reno, in the in, desert. In in, in a, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um so yeah, that's cloud seeding. Hmm. But of course, we tried to weaponize it.
1: <laughs>
0: what? Uh, <laughs> How? So Operation Popeye dirt was used during the or was a thing during the Vietnam War. Uh, ran from the operation itself ran from 67 to 72. Okay. And basically, they tried to use cloud seeding to increase and intensify the monsoon season in Vietnam, such Oops. that the roads and and just basically create deluge in certain areas, so the roads would wash out or you know anything that heavy rain might do to disrupt. Uh, Troop movement, basically. If there's something,
1: you know, called passive-aggressive warfare, it's that. I'm pretty <laughs> sure.
0: <laughs> that's crazy. Um,
1: yeah, that's so a wild way of thinking.
0: We tried to do this over the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which was a, a road uh-huh. um, again to try and uh, hamper troop movement. Um, in '66, so a year before the project was officially in in play. We tested the idea over the Laos panhandle, the country of Laos, mm-hmm. and uh, didn't tell anybody. Excuse me. It's got more <laughs> rain that year. Yeah. Um, Did it work? It's, it worked enough that they went forward with the project. Um, but while they were testing this, it was claimed that one of these seeded clouds drifted over the Vietnam border and dropped nine inches of rain on a U.S. Special Forces camp in a four-hour period. Damn. So, yeah, they seeded the cloud, but it went in a direction they didn't want it to. Right. Yeah, that's true. You're seeding it, but you're not necessarily controlling it after that point. So, yeah, starting March 20th, 1967, underneath the slogan, Make Mud, Not War, (laughs) the 54th Weather Reconnaissance Squadron carried out two sorties, two flights a day using, um, they had three C-130s and a couple... um, F-4 Phantoms, which are fighter planes. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they were... Officially, they were on weather reconnaissance missions, um, but they were... Two times a day, they were cloud-seeding, trying to just make it rain.
1: That's pretty fascinating. Yeah.
0: And so this was hidden for a while, and once it came out, it caused a huge discussion. Um, And I actually should have put this in the... I didn't find this one when I did the Treaties episode... Uh, but there is actually a national, or I'm sorry, a global treaty uh, outlawing environmental warfare. Really? As res, as re, partially as a result of Operation Popeye. People were upset when it became a publicly known thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, it,
0: just because of, you
1: know, the idea of somebody manipulating the weather or the actual effect that it had on, you know, practically on the battlefield.
0: I think it I think it was more the controlling of the weather. It's it's very odd um, like. It makes it, it, it
1: you know, regardless of the outcome it feels very you know like you you've <laughs> you can't get much more powerful than that. Like yes you can, but sound you know knowing that you can control the weather is a pretty uh, ominous thing.
0: Yeah, it is. Um Yeah, I could see
1: how that would be upsetting for people.
0: Yeah, it was. Let's see. So that was Operation Popeye, and I should say that uh, in World War II, the British had Project Cumulus, and that was sort of the first. It never did anything, and it never really got off the ground, but Mm -hmm. they had a project looking to do the same thing, but in World War II. Uh, it never got off the ground, so I would actually say that they were probably the first ones in the modern era, at least, era, at least, to try and weaponize the weather. That's
1: that's wild, like that. There's people
0: thinking of ideas like that. <laughs> oh, it dude, just... that's there are people that, that get paid all day to think of stuff like this. I just yeah,
1: it's just never somewhere I guess my brain would go. But I'm not thinking of any war strategies, I guess, for that matter. So.
0: Another uh, use for cloud seeding mm-hmm. is, uh, or well, attempted use is storm disruption, specifically tropical storms and hurricanes. Okay. So the hypothesis is that the, the seeding of the cloud with the silver iodide or the dry, well, silver iodide in this particular case, um, would essentially disrupt the, the cyclone of the storm by making certain parts of the storm prematurely rain or you know get rid of their moisture you're disrupt you're disrupting the equilibrium or the the system that is the storm right okay. and they were just they were basically just hoping and hypothesizing that with enough you know poking of the bear i guess they would get it to go away hmm. so project storm fury was is our name for it uh which ran from 62 to 83 was attempt uh, initially set out to try and weaken these storms. Um,
1: It sounds like one of those things where it actually ends up making it stronger. (laughs) (laughs) Not entirely, but it didn't really didn't do it. Yeah. I guess we'd probably be doing that today if it worked, right?
0: Yeah. They don't do it anymore. And which is okay. So the overarching thing here is that like we have examples where people are totally for cloud seeding and, are going for it, and then mm-hmm. this storm fury, as I'll describe in a second, it peters out because it's, well, for two reasons, but ultimately it's not working. Um, so, yeah, 65, um, they outline all these criteria to identify storms that are candidates for the seeding. It includes storms they have to be not going to hit land, but still within the plane's Range right, it's got so much gas and whatever. Yeah. So the plane can only go so far. hmm Um. Sorry, less less than ten percent chance of approaching land within the day it had to be within range of the aircraft. It had to be a pretty intense storm already, even though it's off the coast. Generally, they get stronger as they approach the coast, um, and it had to have a well-formed eye of the storm. Okay. Um. So these criteria ultimately were sort of the one of the downfalls of the project because they just didn't get enough opportunities to actually go try and, and stop these things.
1: So they didn't modify their criteria. They just ended it.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, essentially. Hmm. Um, but I I imagine at least the criteria was, well, especially the plain range one. You can't really do much about that, but yeah, but you know, they felt that those criteria, that criteria was important enough to, to stick by it. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so would they, they just like
1: try to, in theory, fly over the storm completely and drop stuff or are they like, you know, I didn't flying find to exactly, the edge of it and like,
0: I didn't find exactly how they were seeding the storms themselves, but yeah. I mean, we, we've definitely flown planes into the eyes of hurricanes before. Yeah. So true. you can definitely get in there.
1: <laughs> I cannot. Oh my God. Think about that.
0: So they only got a couple attempts at this whole thing. I think literally like four okay. from in 20 years. Um, the last one, uh, it seemed like it kind of worked. But then if you took the data of how the storm petered out and, and ultimately didn't cause any damage, if you map that against all the other storms that we have data on, mm-hmm. there was just no statistical evidence that the seeding really did anything. One sample is never enough for yeah, anything it's not even, anyway. Yeah, it's not even close to enough. Yeah. And so about halfway through this project's lifetime, they, they basically just switched over to researching uh, storms rather than really trying to stop them. And eventually they kind of figured out that they didn't really think that the storms contained enough super-cooled water for cloud seeding to be effective.
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: And I guess actually I should go back to the, I didn't do a good job of describing the origin of all this. The clouds themselves, the, the water sits up there in a sort of super cooled state where it's liquid getting ready to turn into ice, but it's not for whatever reason. And so when we introduce the catalyst into that system, it, it causes that change and causes the rain to get heavy enough to fall but then it unfreezes, turns back into liquid as it's falling through the atmosphere. Cause obviously it, it warms up pretty quickly.
1: Right. Hmm. I would imagine it has something to do with pressure
0: that I'm sure it does. Yes. Yeah. But I'm not smart enough for that.
1: Keeping it from solidifying at that, uh, it's probably lower pressure up there anyway.
0: Yeah. Cause uh, that the, uh, Vonnegut guy, um, I think it was him. No, Schaefer. He figured out that negative forty degrees Celsius is the limit for liquid water. So you can water can be in a liquid state down to negative forty degrees Celsius, which is pretty darn cold. It sure is. Um, and then once you, if you introduce a, a catalyst, it'll it'll spontaneously form a ice at that point. Okay. Um, so yeah, we tried to weaponize cloud seeding. We've tried to protect our or our our coasts with cloud seeding, mm-hmm. um, and then as you sort of alluded to, they I mean they do this right now in a lot of drier countries, Middle Eastern countries, some Asian countries, and still to this day they like I you know we've, there's debate as to whether or not it really is worth the money. I guess because right, right. I guess at this point you could reasonably say it does have an effect, but. The amount of money that's spent on the act of cloud seeding, I wonder if it's worth, uh, you know, the payoff.
1: Yeah, right. I was thinking that actually when you were talking about the guy in Reno saying he can make it rain ten percent more. But yeah, it's
0: not ten percent like of a lot.
1: what. Ten percent of something that's pretty small, right? So,
0: <laughs> Pro- probably probably not worth it. Okay, so cloud seeding is the sort of the main method and really the only... The premier
1: weather manipulation tool?
0: Yeah, because (laughs) the sort of superhero style or comic book style weather manipulation machines don't really exist. Um, You can't just like... I don't even know how, but you can't really just control the weather. Hmm. But the article that got me down this entire path uh, and just... This is so absurd. I love it. So... Recently, Volkswagen has gotten into trouble with uh, this town in Mexico where they have a plant
1: mm-hmm.
0: where they build cars, right? Mm-hmm. And so they, when they're done building these cars, a, a lot of uh, car manufacturers, they have these giant lots where they put all the finished cars, right? Yep. Waiting, Waiting for delivery and all that. You might imagine that when a hailstorm arrives, that could really suck if you've got 2,000 brand new vehicles sitting out there and the hail just destroys them. Right. So the solution to that, as far as Volkswagen and also Nissan are concerned, uh, is to install hail cannons Whoa. around the factory. Uh, if you want to Google this, it would be a good thing to, to see what they look like. Yeah, I will. Um, it, just imagine a uh, a four foot by four foot, maybe three uh, square cube at at the base. And then a giant ten-foot cone yep. facing straight up. Straight up.
1: I'm looking at it. Almost looks like and, a uh, a rocket that somebody assembled backwards. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and these these things, uh, they an explosion happens in the base, and the cone magnifies the explosion, and mm-hmm. the shock wave of the explosion allegedly keeps away hail by breaking up. The ice that's forming basically they they blow the hail up before it gets big enough to fall.
1: (laughs) So, you know, those like um, those little uh, air guns that you had when you were a kid, like it looked like this big uh, microphone, and you would pull back the rubber band and let it go, and it would shoot a ball of air. Yep, that's what that sounds like to me just like way glorified, basically. Oh, yeah, here's a um... I think this is just some fake image. VW will stop using anti hail cannons. Right. So. Oh, yeah, it says right on the picture terrible artist rendering. <laughs> Indeed, it is terrible. <laughs> anyway.
0: So, before we talk more about the modern ones, mm-hmm. um, this is actually really, to me, this is even more fascinating than the cloud seeding one. Um, this idea of loud noises warding off storms goes way back um one of the more notable moments of realization was once cannons and gunpowder were a regular feature in war so uh-huh. the seven years war the napoleonic wars the american civil war it's it was largely documented and recorded that uh rain heavy rain would usually fall the day after a large battle happened oh Really? So the cannon fire going off all day for a couple of days artificially pushes the moisture away. And then once the cannon fire stops, that moisture comes rushing back into the dry system and apparently causes heavy rain.
1: Really? So I can understand when you design something deliberately to do that, such as these hail, anti-hail cannons. Just regular cannons, you know, during warfare have that effect? That's surprising.
0: So, this is debated. Um, because after these, especially the American Civil War, there was a guy who was like, okay, people are kind of reporting this. It seems like mm-hmm. it might be a thing. I'm going to go try to experiment with it. Yeah. And he tried dynamite and a few other things. Uh, fortunately, he chose Texas, what I'm not really sure. That was the best choice as far as moisture is concerned. But anyway, um, him and then also our military uh, ultimately came up with inconclusive results as far yeah. as whether or not it was it was successful. Mm-hmm. Um, but even um, before the modern versions, church bells, people thought church bells kept sto- storms away. So there's there's a long history of this idea at least, yeah. which yeah, right. makes me I don't know if that warrants merit or not
1: yeah i'm just i'm just thinking about the physics behind that like
0: yeah yeah
1: obviously sound waves can create pressure gradients and and do exactly what you're describing the hail cannon i can totally see that happening um but i'm just surprised at something doing that without deliberately being designed so
0: so back to the modern hail cannons Mm -hmm. uh, it's a mixture of acetylene and oxygen in nice. the lower chamber. That's a good mix. Yeah, that's a... uh <laughs> um but so the reason people that's, in Miss That's the same
1: mis- you use that for uh I forget which type of welding. Make or tig, I don't remember, but that the acetylene gas you use in welding.
0: Yeah. Um, so Nissan in 2005 had this issue at their Mississippi plant. The reason people in Mexico and Mississippi and probably anywhere else that these things are used are so pissed off is because you have to fire these hail cannons like every six seconds. Whoa. Yep. And it's been shown that they really only have an effect of about 200 square meters directly above them, Mm -hmm. which is not very big. And you're, burning this
1: fuel constantly and it probably make super loud (laughs) it's
0: so yeah it's got to be crazy loud it has to be whoa so yeah these things fire every six seconds like how can that even and i'd imagine if you're protecting an entire parking
1: lot's worth of vehicles you've got a lot of these
0: you got like 80 of them yeah well i don't know how many but why
1: wouldn't you just build a structure over them
0: like so okay i was gonna ultimately end this part of it with asking you that like why (sighs) only because we're talking about cars is why i was gonna put this on you (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i why invest in this like black magic don't really know if it really works
1: yeah i'm really confused because i'm really confused not only i mean Building a parking lot-sized canopy is going to be expensive, too. But now you have these machines that you have to fuel and maintain and may or may not work, let's be honest. Whereas if you just had cover for all these cars, that's pretty foolproof and passive once you have it built. Yeah. I don't know.
0: So it's, it's really strange. You've got the the money and the choice of these huge companies, clearly they, I mean, companies make dumb choices all the time, but (laughs) I just imagine
1: somebody like in the boardroom or whatever, they were like, okay, we need to build a canopy. Our cars keep getting hail damage. And then some guy just kind of walks in and he's like, or we can buy 80 anti hail cannons. And everybody's like, Ooh, I kind of like the sound of that. (laughs) Um, yeah, I don't know, man, that's, uh, is hail a year round threat or is it like hail seasons a week and they just blast them every six seconds for a week and that's it?
0: I guess I can only speak to my experience with it. For me, it's, uh, it's a threat probably five to six months of the year. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you've got the choice of these large companies and then uh, clearly going with this seemingly absurd solution to this problem. And then you've got people like in the journals, like scientific journals, who use the quote, the use of cannons or explosive rockets is a waste of money and effort. is how a particular scientific journal ended. Wow, this Um,
1: article, this... uh, uh, um... Auto blog articles from yesterday. So yeah, this is. Uh, I mean, I know. Oh, the you, ha- say- you mean the Volkswagen thing? Yeah, yeah. I know you said you just saw an article too. So yeah, uh, I read about it on Thursday. Yeah.
0: So also another hole in this whole hail cannon thing is <laughs> this is absurd. Thunder is a way more powerful sonic boom than a hail cannon. Okay. That doesn't do anything to hail.
1: Um,
0: so. Now, it's less focused, certainly, but I don't
1: know. It just... Does it not... We can't really say that for sure, right? It's not like...
0: Well, yeah, that's true. We can't.
1: You The thunder is taking place in one area of a storm system, and the hail might be spread throughout. And if you were to actually analyze the cloud itself you might see a momentary stop in the hail or something happening to the right. hail but by the time it reaches the ground you that effect is you know you know uh, washed out you just don't see it anymore um but yeah i don't know
0: and i think ultimately one of the other big problems here is uh weather itself you can't it's a scientist's nightmare as far as replication because it's so hard to replicate exact conditions and, and test out a theory, you know, repeatedly. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, the national center for atmospheric research in Boulder, Colorado, uh, in 2008 was another group of people to be like, no, this is a dumb idea. Don't, (laughs) don't do this. About the, the hail cannon specifically. Yeah. The hail cannon specifically.
1: So yeah, Ooh, who's I just... making those?
0: Okay, well, <laughs> so the manufacturers claim for what these things are doing. Mm. It's a... They claim that moisture that would have otherwise fallen as a hailstone, when blasted apart by these hail cannons, falls as slush or rain. That is, um... it's yeah, critical I mean, to It you...
1: sounds yeah. good.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: but I don't know. It's critical what?
0: Uh, to use it uh, as the storm approaches, but not, uh, of course <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you're not gonna use, use it, after it when it doesn't exist
0: yet. <laughs> yeah. So those are like basically the two types of weather modification that mm-hmm. exist is hail cannons and cloud seeding, which I just is hilarious. Um, yeah, One there's really, the...
1: I was trying to think of some others while we were going, and really everything I was thinking of is just not manipulation per se, but just utilizing the weather. So it's, that's different.
0: The only other two that I could come up with myself uh, was avalanche control, where they fire cannons or large rifles at the sides of mountains mm-hmm. to prematurely trigger avalanches so that skiers and stuff can come in after and ski the area without fear of triggering an avalanche. But that's borderline that's like that's borderline whether it's actually yeah. a weather event or not. Exactly. Yeah. The other do one. Do we do anything uh, with
1: wind? Ever try to like control wind patterns
0: or anything like no, that that you found? No. Not that I'd found. Not hmm. that I found. Only capture wind. Via. Capturing, sure. Of course. But, yeah. Hmm. No, I didn't find like I'm sure somebody's attempted to generate a tornado at some point. I'm sure that's happened. Humans, we have so much time. There's so many of us, and we have so much time on our hands. <laughs> I bet <laughs> I mean, somebody if somebody's building like, anti-hail cannons, somebody's trying to fuck around with the wind. Definitely. But I did not... Uh, I tried okay. to... I did do a little digging to try and find more than two uh, examples of this. But um, in that research, I did find... Um, so the Beijing Weather Modification Office forms... One part of China's nationwide weather control effort, believed to be the world's largest, and they employ 37,000 people.
1: Whoa.
0: <laughs> they seed clouds by firing rockets and shells loaded with uh, silver iodide into those clouds. Mm-hmm. And the most famous sort of um, use of this was in the 2008 Olympics. Uh, they used 30 airplanes. Four thousand rocket launchers and seven thousand anti-aircraft guns to attempt to stop rain from inter- or interrupting the Olympics and specifically the opening ceremony. Jeez. was it effective? Uh, it didn't rain. It didn't rain, but but that's the thing is you can't. There's no, <laughs> saying, there's no
1: saying it wouldn't have ra- or it would have rained otherwise. Right. Had they not done that.
0: Right. Uh, this office did successfully create snow on New Year's Day in 1997. Wow. Um, how much snow? I did. I didn't say. <laughs> I was. I wanted to know. I was annoyed that I didn't find out how much snow because what are we talking about here? <laughs> right. Um, they also did capture some exact numbers. Um, they claim that they increased. Precipitation in Beijing itself by about an eighth in 2004 from 2003. But what I couldn't find and or didn't spend time I probably could have found it is that within the standard deviation of what's possible naturally right right could could 2004 be an eighth more
1: right right statistical just not statistically significant right um. Yeah, not to mention the trade-offs of doing this. Like, is precipitation really their biggest issue to be focusing on right now? There's probably a lot of money wasted, or not wasted, but spent doing this. I'm uh, thinking about the Olympics uh, situation. I don't know where they were firing these, like in what proximity to the opening ceremony and, and events going on, but...
0: They were situated... Probably hear this. <laughs> no, no, no. So they were... Um, they were basically like intercepting weather systems well away from Beijing itself. So 20 miles, 30 miles outside of Beijing, they were trying to cause clouds that look like they might dump rain over Beijing. They were trying to get them to rain sooner, basically.
1: So um, the weather, you know, one mechanism i guess that it works upon is like high and low pressure systems right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i wonder if there's a way anybody's looking into how to manipulate that cuz that's going to drive what where clouds go and the patterns it certainly everything, would everything everything travels from high pressure to low pressure right high to low right. so if you can like artificially pump up the pressure of a, a weather system or something can you
0: but how in the world things? would you ever do I, that?
1: Well, I don't know. I don't know what causes naturally a, a high-pressure area versus low-pressure area system. I don't know what, what that Me is. Me neither. <laughs>
0: Did you should get a meteorologist.
1: Right. You mean you didn't bring one on for this? <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs>
0: um, okay, so the last thing, um, you know, we talked about uh, the Middle East a little bit. Um, in 2010... Dubai and uh, Oman, they ba- they claim that they created fifty artificial rainstorms between July and August of 2010. So, yeah, every time I found something where people were like, "Yeah, we it works," <laughs> I immediately I immediately found un- somebody talking to that exact scenario and saying, "No, it, it you can't really say it worked." Like with the Beijing one, there's this guy, a couple people who were like, "Yeah." Didn't really. I don't, we don't. We don't <laughs> yeah, think it really didn't know. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, weather manipulation. It's funny. It, lots of time and energy and and actual money has been spent and and implemented. Still, with the whole thing really up for debate.
1: That's, uh, that's a. That's pretty interesting topic. I got to say.
0: Yeah, the hail cannon one. I just. What an absurd. That's. that's t- it totally, like, male thing to come up with. Yeah, we're gonna make this thing that <laughs> just Let's just shoot at it. It every...
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> just explodes every six seconds, it'll be fine.
1: I, I wonder if there's a video of their factory and these things going off, because every six seconds, and who knows how many they have, sounds like something I need to check out.
0: Yeah, You know, I didn't even think to look, that's, that was a failing of my, I didn't even think to look up one of these things. I There was a video of, like, how they were made in on the manufacturer's website that I went to, but I didn't actually see a video of them operating.
1: So, was it a U.S. manufacturer? Do you yeah. Know? So that must mean that there's another one, right? Otherwise, they would have a monopoly on the market, which we don't like here. <sighs> so there's two yeah. companies at least that are making.
0: Probably, they, there must be. Yeah,
1: because <laughs> I mean, you gotta have choice, right?
0: I, uh, I just pulled up Google Images real quick mm-hmm. after typing in hail cannon again, and I just I, looking at uh, oh, there's a car lot right there. Where are the hail cannons? I one picture I'm looking at, they've got these things like every six feet. Um, that's, that's
1: yeah, that's a lot in an entire lot, like.
0: Uh, no, this one's not like a car lot, but in a
1: grid or something.
0: That seems unnecessary because. The manufacturers state that between 100 to 200 square meters, like I said earlier, uh, you know, counts for the area directly above the cannon. Mm. So you wouldn't need to put them every six feet, but.
1: Where do I go to buy one of these? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait, here we go.
0: Yeah, hail cannon. uh, Eggers hail cannons. There you go.
1: Designed and manufactured in New Zealand by Mike Eggers LTD and fabricated to various standards. Okay. Where are the prices? (laughs) How much money do you need? Huh. Must be a uh, per-order basis here.
0: I wonder if they didn't... uh... they're not really advertising how much these cost and also putting a video of how of them working cuz i bet it sucks like these things have to be so loud
1: i would yeah probably
0: oh and they're bigger than i described actually oh yeah
1: request a price quote wow this company's selling them they've got like an entire room built around them um, with gas and, uh, you know like an acetylene and uh, hydrogen you said right or oxygen rather oxygen yeah um, yeah this is a whole system so that it runs by itself and oh man this is intense <laughs> this is this company is called Inno Power I-N-O power and their tagline is hail control system <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, request a price quote, so they're not going to tell you right away.
0: Darn. All right, so I think I made it pretty difficult for you to... Um. Yeah, sure did. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of something here. All right, I um, will waste time by looking up... I really wanted to buy one of these stupid things. Well, I think, I think oh, what I'm going to go with... <laughs> If I find a hail cannon on Craigslist, I'm going
1: to be pretty happy. Up for sale, my 2009 hail cannon. Just don't really use it anymore. <laughs> I've blasted tons of hail with this, though, and it totally works. I know what I have. I don't need help selling this.
0: Oh, there's no results for hail cannon. <laughs> Shocking. Um, all right,
1: so just like we, ha- or we appear in someone's or some think that we have a grasp on the way the weather works. We have a similar grasp on the way our brain works. So we have certain things figured out, but there's other things that are more ambiguous and not quite fully fleshed out. That's how I'm going to go with, just like the weather. So my topic—that's oh, <laughs> the best I could do. <laughs> Um, it's probably not hundred percent
0: no, I think you got it true we don't, but we don't really understand the weather but there's definitely totally. we don
1: 't totally understand the weather, and there are certainly aspects of the brain that we don 't understand um, all right, so my topic uh I chose this uh, not only because a listener suggested it, and it 's an awesome idea, but also because I felt bad about insulting yogurt, and so I <laughs> felt like I needed to choose a topic that this individual. Suggested, but it is actually going to be fun. Um, left brain versus right brain. Okay. So,
0: I always forget which left is the. So what creative? would you?
1: Creative. Uh, other way around. Damn. So the theory, yeah. So the theory is that, or the myth. I'm actually going to lay that out there now. It's a myth that the left brain is associated with like analytical thinking and math, and the right brain is associated more with creativity and some sort of emotional intelligence. So knowing that that theory, would you say that you're left or right brain dominant?
0: Goodness. I don't I I wanted to say in middle. I don't think either for me is dominant cuz I have interests in both areas. But I, I guess feel, I guess I'm right If you no. had to
1: give me like a split, like a 60/40
0: I was going to say a 60/40 to the creative side.
1: Uh yeah, I would probably yeah, I definitely would never try to say that I'm totally one spectrum versus the other or one side no, of the spectrum can, versus the other.
0: I could do some math.
1: Yeah, I've not I've for... done I've done it. I I'm not great, but I've definitely had to do it and got through it, so um Yeah, I would say if if this were true that I do lean more towards um, the right side a little bit. But anyway. Yeah,
0: cause, well, you and I both can play instruments, and mm-hmm. if there is a, ever a creative thing that I imagine lives on one side of the brain, if that were a thing, the ability to create music is probably one of them.
1: Right. However,
0: there's a a large case to be made that math has a lot to do with uh, music. So Yeah,
1: no, and that's a great example because hardly ever is there
0: just one aspect
1: right um and that actually will come into play in how the brain actually works uh relative to this theory so um yeah so basically uh the way this this myth is laid out is that each half of the brain is basically responsible um for a certain type of information or you know type of thinking and it's that creative thinking and emotional intelligence is processed solely on the right side versus you when you do math, your left side of your brain's you know firing and and lighting up and that type of thing um, so the you know the theory is that people are dominant or biased towards one side over the other
0: right um, which is interesting uh so do you know? Did you happen to find where this sort of started? I'm, I'm thinking about where this started to become a thing. Yeah, we can probably, probably hard nail that down.
1: Totally. Let's um. Yeah, let's go there. So, it actually. It, when would you guess? Would you think that this is like a an older um, theory? I'm saying this or? is a
0: relatively no, no. This has got to be relatively new. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, we didn't I, really start studying the brain or understanding it for right. You know, right. The, since the last. You know, I must say the fifties close sixties. Nice. Yeah. So this guy, Roger Wilcott Sperry, um, started doing some research in 1960, 1961. Um, so, you know, basically his whole objective was to just understand the brain more. Yep. Um, but what he started to do was study people who in particular had epilepsy and these people elected to undergo a procedure um, that basically involves uh, splitting the two halves of the brain. So we can we can cover more on brain anatomy in a minute after the, the history here. But um, the brain is, the larger majority of it, split into two halves. I mean, if you think about a picture that you've seen of the brain, you kind of have this giant mass on top, which takes up most of it. And it's got these two... Um, they're not individual, but they're kind of two halves that you do see um, yep. visually. So that's certainly playing into this a little bit. Um, but those are connected by something that's got a badass name called the Corpus Colossum. Have you ever heard that term?
0: I have. Yeah.
1: Um, I know you know you know a fair bit about um, brain. the brain. So.
0: <laughs> well, and then of course, <laughs> relatively speaking, because... Uh, what I what where I really learned about the brain is that we know nothing. About the brain. That's that's <laughs> yeah. really what I. Well,
1: learned. you know more than me. Um, but yeah. So anyway, so the the corpus callosum, which is just a cool name, is the is. the tissue and the the you know the web that connects the two halves of the brain, for lack of a better term. Um, so what this procedure is is basically severing that. Yeah. So now you have these people with epilepsy who um, have a severed brain. And when you think about that, you might think that, you know, I guess allegedly the procedure doesn't have the negatives that you might expect when you tell somebody that you've just cut their brain in half. Um, you know, you'd probably expect full-on failure of the person.
0: Yeah, usually, brain surgery in general... When they have like people's heads open While Mm -hmm. they're still awake I've always found to be like How is that even really possible
1: Yeah and um, So I guess what ends up happening is In general What this guy found This Roger Sperry guy That the epileptic seizures Tended to be reduced Um, There were certainly Side effects of cutting the brain in half But uh, not necessarily as catastrophic As you might think Um, but then he started doing experiments on these people, uh, and basically what it involved was showing them or asking them to, his theory was to process information, um, that was believed to be handled by one side of the brain versus the other. Uh, so what it looked like in theory, or in practice rather, was he had these people sit in front of a screen. Um, and actually, and first of all, Going back to to brain anatomy a little bit, we can go back there later. But did you know that the right side of your brain controls the left side of your body?
0: Yeah, isn't that weird?
1: That is weird. I did not know that. Uh, and I'm bringing yeah, that up it's... because it, it involves how we set this up. But
0: yeah, well, there's um there's a couple things that the the body does that way. Uh, when light comes into your eye, it's actually upside down. Yeah, that brain. one I knew. Yeah. Our brain flips it, flips it over. It. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't really, I couldn't think of a practical reason to have your right side of your brain control the left side of your body and vice versa.
0: If, uh, an animal is coming at me and is, I don't know. I'm stretching here. Uh, they're coming at my right side and I'm defending with my right hand side. I'm defending the left side of my brain. I don't know. <laughs> I was trying to make something up as I went. didn't work. Yeah, I don't know.
1: I can't. Yeah, anyway. I don't know. Um, All right, so these people that now have a brain that their corpus callosum has been split, he's got them sitting in front of a screen, and his theory, there's already, I don't know where this comes from, but there's already knowledge or theories that certain information is handled by certain areas of the brain. That's already in his head and Mm -hmm. he's trying to figure out if that's true. So what he does, sits them down in front of the screen, and he flashes an image on either side of the screen. Um, And let me make sure I get this right. So when he shows, and I'm talking flash like quick, like an image of, I don't know, a cup, you would flash it really quick and it would go away. Um, So he flashes the image on the left side of the screen, for example, um, and the subject would recognize that they saw something, but were not able to tell him what it was that they saw. So it would be like, okay, yes, I recognize that something showed up on the screen, but I can't think of what it is that you showed me. Mm-hmm. Right. Um so what he concluded from that is that uh language is processed on the left side. So um right, so he's showing something on the left side of the screen which means the right side of the brain is handling it, and if the right side of the brain saw something but couldn't name it, couldn't process what it was, that must mean that that's taking place on the left side of the brain. That's what his conclusion was. Okay. Um, because of the whole opposite thing. Um, so he repeated this over and over and over. I don't know the number, but enough. Um, and basically his conclusion is that language and calculation happen on the left side and spatial reasoning happened on the right side that was it that was his conclusion um and basically as time went on his results were oversimplified and
0: i was just going to say it's way too simple
1: it's yeah i mean he didn't try to make it any more than that he didn't try to like shop around his um his theory as being anything other than that uh, he did actually eventually win a Nobel Prize for his work, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, once once his his uh, findings got out there, it kind of started to get simplified. Um, and then an article showed up in the New York Times in 1973 that just made the claim that people are left brain slash right brain brained. So they oh, just I kind of like. Saying. Yeah, they just kind of took his findings and came up with this headline-worthy story. Whereas that was okay, never
0: I... his his uh, his actual conclusion. They right. took it and ran with it. Right, and I was exactly. so okay. I was confused. I was saying I even felt like his conclusion was too simple. Just oh from... oh, that's what, um, yeah yeah yeah.
1: Yeah, well, he didn't try to say like the exact type of information is processed here versus there, or um. I, yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. His his, uh, his conclusion, while correct, is simple. It um, doesn't really explore the details of what's happening in the brain. It's just saying, in general, this is what I observed, that language must be processed right. primarily here, whereas spatial reasoning must be processed primarily here. Because that's, you know, there's way more... Types of thinking that you do other than language and spatial reasoning, that's just how his test was set up, right? Yeah, so those yeah. are the conclusions he was able to draw. So, from what he did and from what he reported on, is pretty reasonable and yeah, pretty I accurate. Agree. I mean, he didn't try to over you know, embellish or anything like that. It's more of uh, this New York Times article that came out, and there was also a uh, um. Uh, another article that came out around the same time um making similar claims um but yeah this this bias was basically never part of his research um so it it just kind of took off for decades and from that point and it just became kind of uh i don't know fun to think about i guess or you know gave somebody something to say like yeah you know i'm i'm more on the creative side so i'm Right brain dominant or whatever.
0: Um, I wonder if the uh, the whole we only use ten percent of our brains. Oh, I wonder if we'll get there. Same. Oh, okay. <laughs>
1: no, that I, as I was doing all this research, that came into my mind as well. That I whole imagine thing. this.
0: Yeah, because it's it's the same sort of thing. It's mm-hmm. like something that for whatever reason people just find makes them feel. Oh, I'm actually ninety. I heard a term. 90%, I ninety. Think...
1: It was like popular psychology or something, like pop sci or something like that. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. It just kind
1: of takes over. Um, anyway. Yeah, so in, in 2013, uh, a study was done to try to, specifically to try to debunk this theory. And they were successful, really. Um, I guess they looked at, you know, with modern technology, they looked at a thousand brain scans of people who were just in a resting state. So I guess, you know, sitting there essentially doing nothing, Um, and they were taking live images of their brain and just trying to observe which parts of the brain were active, you know, when you look at the image, it basically looks like parts of the brain lighting up, Um, and what they saw is that, you know, in general over these thousand uh, samples that, yes, there are areas of the brain that were more active than others when they were in this resting state, but there was absolutely no bias towards right or left activity. Hmm. Um, You know, there was no trend there. So, um, and it makes sense if you think about the study, you can't like say, okay, do math, and then we're going to (laughs) look at these thousand people and then uh, look at their brain activity. You'd obviously see certain areas lighting up more often than others. So by having people do the resting state, um, you kind of get them just in their natural Right. whatever they must be thinking about at the time. Who knows? Um, I got to pick up milk from the grocery store. <laughs> I forgot to pick up milk from the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> How much milk do we have at the grocery store? Or no, sorry, at no. home. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so... So, it's a theory, or it's a myth, really, and it's been debunked, so... People still toss it around, the left brain, right brain thing. I don't know if it's as popular as it once was. Probably not. Um, now, looking at the brain itself, like I mentioned before, it is, in fact, divided into these uh, two hemispheres, or at least the um, the cerebrum, right? Which is, right. when you're looking at the brain, that's the... That's 85% of the weight of the brain and it's like the part that you think about when you think yeah. of the brain the 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 bulk of it. That's got right. all the squiggly bits on the outside. Right. <laughs> I don't know how to Versus describe how a brain looks.
0: The the other major part of it is the sort of the motor control, the lizard brain as it's sometimes referred to. Yeah, I've heard
1: um, it I've heard it re- uh, referred to as the old brain. Like yeah, that's yeah. the that's the part of the brain that's you know we have in common with lesser beings. And then the it's, cerebrum is what we have unique to
0: us. Right. So it's the part that uh it's the reason you know how to breathe, how right. to drink, how to walk. All it that handles
1: stuff. like involuntary movements and
0: Right, right. Yeah. It's not the thinking part, it's the subconscious part, if you want yeah. to get real easy about it.
1: Um yeah, so so going back to the the this was really all fun to research because i really didn't know much about the brain going into this or at least the the makeup of it but that corpus colossum yep i mean the whole point of that is to join the two halves of the the brain so yeah um, it's
0: the it's like the information pathway between the yeah two sides.
1: it really is i mean so yes it's it is true that certain areas of the brain handle um and are responsible for specific tasks and type of information, but they're always talking to each other. So you never have, you know, if I'm sitting here doing a math problem or whatever, it's not like every other part of my brain is shut down and not communicating with the math part, to put it simply. Like they're all, it's it's all working and interconnected Um, without getting into it more than that because I couldn't even if I wanted to.
0: Oh, and it's, it's also been, so that brain scanning technology you talked about, like mm-hmm. the ability to, we, we now have the ability, we've had it for maybe, a, well, I guess I don't know how long, but let's say a decade. Mm-hmm. That's really, really advanced our ability to study the brain because you can, just like you were saying, you can watch the brain activity in real time. Yeah. Um, so one, one thing that's, it's incredible. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. We definitely have seen, you know, when somebody's talking, this area of the brain lights up much more than other parts. Right. But what's really fascinating is the adaptability of the brain. If you damage that part, the brain will build a new part to, or or will reallocate space in the brain mm-hmm. and move language processing over there. If yeah.
1: Will. And um, yeah, that actually comes up uh, in the the 10% theory, which we can get into in a little bit. Into um, why people thought maybe we only use whatever small fraction you want to put on it of our brain is because when you do damage something, the results and the consequence aren't what you aren't would you? expect. So yeah, yeah, um, not always, of course, but um, so it, it kind of led people to think, okay, well, maybe that part wasn't doing anything or whatever. Um,
0: it's weird that the brain is both it is and it isn't more resilient than you than you might imagine it can actually it can handle a decent amount of damage
1: so when you look at um a typical diagram of the brain um so i found this really interesting is that despite it being divided you know if you look at somebody head-on so you're looking at their eyes their brain is kind of divided in these hemispheres one on the right one on the left Um, when you look at a diagram of a brain, typically it's viewed from the side and this cerebrum is divided into four lobes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but it's actually symmetrical from side to side. So when you view it from the side, you can kind of, you know, map out these four areas, but they're, you know, for instance, the frontal lobe, when looking at it from the side, it's kind of the area in the front. But then if you were to rotate the brain 90 degrees and look at it from the front, frontal lobe is symmetric on the right side and the left side so it kind of takes up uh, both sides um, yeah so from the side you kind of have these four areas the frontal lobes uh, speaking personality traits judging and abstract thinking does that sound right kind of all takes place there um, yeah so, so I guess that that
0: kind of sounds. <laughs> I was going to say full disclosure it's been about yeah Uh eight years or so six years since i've really thought about this stuff
1: Uh, yeah well it sounded like that everything in the frontal lobe or what the frontal lobe is responsible for is everything that makes its way to somebody else so like when you're speaking yeah yeah yeah. when you're judging a situation and how to act or whatever you know things like that it's kind of the final filter before before something comes out of your mouth or whatever that's
0: that's actually that's a good way to look at it is uh the final filter
1: yeah um the parietal lobes is that's am i pronouncing that right i think so yeah um responsible for body position and sense of touch the um occipital oc- occipital Op- occipital Opsipital. thank you yeah
0: lobes that's a t- that was a tough one yeah that was really oh well, that
1: makes sense i mean it's related to sight, so that makes sense Uh, and then the temporal lobes for sound speech and comprehension, I guess. Um, and then there, you can kind of like subdivide some of those lobes into different cortexes and regions and stuff, but, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, going back to the theory, it's not unreasonable. So we know that, you know, these various lobes and areas are responsible for various things. And just like people vary from person to person in many other things, you know, I might have large hands. Somebody else has small hands. It's not unreasonable to think that, you know, or, you know, that somebody's brain is got stronger areas than in some respects and weaker areas in others compared to somebody else's brain. Right. There's going to be variability. Yeah. Um, I would
0: say it's entirely,
1: I mean, it would just, it would have to be, otherwise everybody's yeah. brain would be the same. Um, so, knowing that, it's not, you know, it's fair to say that somebody might have a stronger part of their brain that handles certain things, i.e., you know, analytical thinking versus emotional intelligence, but, so that part might be true, but to say that one is person is dominant in a specific side of their brain, is it just doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, it's it's incorrect to think about it as left versus right. Mm-hmm. It would be more correct to think about basically dividing the brain into into more sections. Right, right. Um, and it's it's wild, too, because when they cut that... Uh, oh, geez, What was the name of it? The pathway.
1: Oh, the uh, corpus... uh maximus. Corpus Colossum.
0: Colossum. Colossum. Maximus. Yeah. I don't know where. <laughs> when they cut that, you know... It just is. I mean, you said it already that it's not as destructive as you might imagine. It really isn't nearly as destructive, like at all, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. It's it's incredible how it definitely has an effect, but it's incredible how little of effect, considering that you, they're literally taking a scalpel and slicing it.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. So, what do you think? The I mean, yeah, because the way when I looked at the diagram of the brain, they were explaining the the lobes. It's almost like. We have, and this is probably not true, but it just looks like we have, you know, basically two of everything as far as the cerebrum goes. And I don't know if that's true.
0: I um, think that's a, a pretty logical, you know, so, we, were look, we, were, we were searching for like uh, survival type reasons for mm-hmm, certain things to exist. Mm-hmm. I, The brain is the most important part of the body. Yeah, I, I totally believe that, we self-built in a level of redundancy such mm. that if we get hurt, we can still operate.
1: Right. It's like a two-core processor. Yeah, you can exactly. run off one, but when the corpus You're definitely better with two. colossum is, is cut, you can still function. Or an airplane that loses one of its, uh, <laughs> its engines, it can still fly and make its way to the ground.
0: And I would argue that even when they cut the corpus, the brain must have other pathways to join the two sides because it just doesn't affect people hard enough and and enough that the brain is still working Mm -hmm. to a decent degree.
1: So I was trying to think of other, um, not necessarily just, uh, right versus left thing, but just the biological, um, you know, advantages of having various, you know, regions of the brain handling different types of information. Um, and I guess where I ended up was just kind of like the ability to multitask, right? So if you have, my brain is, one part of it's responsible for, you know, one thing like speech or something or, or vision or I don't know, something like that. Um, but then another area of my brain is responsible for taking in audio inputs. Um, I can kind of have them focusing on different areas and, um, you know, kind of like an inherent multitasking ability there. Right as opposed to the whole brain needing to be activated to do every task obviously you would be <laughs> i guess that's just being less capable if the whole brain had to be activated all the time but it sounds like just um yeah an inherent ability to multitask i guess is where i ended up with that thought
0: yeah i i think that's probably i mean you need you need to be able to do that talk you know we're talking mm-hmm. and moving at the same time right and um, I guess the, I, I, the damage thing too, right? Yeah, I was going to say, the damage thing for me is a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, you know, if I take a hit on the right side of my head, I don't want all of my motor functions or whatever to be compromised or all mm-hmm. of my... I mean, you might lose your speech, but you don't lose your ability to walk or, or whatever. You know, you don't want everything in the same place. Right but it also kind of also is in the same place cuz the brain isn't that big. If you take a big enough if you take a big enough hit, you're in trouble.
1: True. Um yeah. Yeah, I also found it interesting that the theory ended up being these two types of thinking. Like why are those the only two ways in theory of thinking, right? This creative way and this analytical way. Is there not other ways that you could be thinking other words you could apply to it
0: because the editor of the new york times decided that it was going to be too much to try and write an article I about eight, eight different forms of intelligence <laughs> was like no nah, make it make it two make, make it, two. it two it's much more easier
1: to digest and for people to latch on to and it worked right, right. So, yeah yeah it'd actually be really interesting to go and find that article i should have done that huh okay um Okay, so you brought it up, and I arrived at it the same way, the whole 10% thing. And yeah. actually, the 10% <laughs> thing, apply any low percentage to it. I've heard it be 10%, 15%, 20%, like, it doesn't really matter. The theory and myth is that we use a small percentage of the brain, which I've... <laughs> It, if you th- really just think about that, it makes no sense. Why would we have a brain that's, or any organ or any part of our body that's 90% unused? Natural selection would have taken care of that or probably more accurately, just never even allowed it to happen in the first place.
0: And it it goes directly <laughs> against the sort of the theme we've had running here. Just like, why... You just would never do that you're you're biologically and from a survival standpoint you just would never
1: no yeah, it makes no sense to to have yeah.
0: that yeah
1: um
0: what is is the brain keeping ninety percent in reserve on the off chance that you take a right that's an awfully
1: large uh, gamble. backup yeah, like yeah um yeah, so the only part of this that's kind of maybe. True or plausible, at least, is that somebody in a resting state where they're really not doing anything, if you know, if that even exists, um, from an energy perspective, may only be using 10%. But that doesn't mean that 90% of the brain is shut down, that just means that the brain is operating at 10% capacity. Doesn't yeah, it's mean just that not firing as much, yeah, you don't it doesn't need to be um yeah firing at full power, but um you know that doesn't mean that any part of the brain's dormant, like the myth suggests uh so this seems to have come about like I don't know kind of the same time, like early twentieth century, I guess that's when the self help movement started, mm. as it's been referred to, so you start getting claims of like Unlock potential in your brain, and you're not using your brain to your full potential, and things like that being thrown around.
0: Unlock your brain, and therefore make money.
1: Totally, totally. Like, if you can only tap into the other 90% of your brain.
0: (laughs) Guess what? You can actually fly. Right? (laughs) You can control the fucking weather. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah, actually, the more you describe this, it's definitely just a marketing thing. Yeah, I,
1: definitely. You could see how telling somebody that they have 90% of their brain to tap into and them being, you know, none the wiser, being like, oh, okay, tell me more. How do I do that? Like, what do I have, have to book. eat to, you know, unlock the <laughs>
0: 90%? Oh, man, it's crazy. Um Seriously, the moment the moment you apply any logic to this, <laughs> it falls what, apart. What does a what does a hundred percent unlocked person? <laughs> what are they? What what is even possible? If if you can do what you can do with ten percent, what even is hundred percent like?
1: Right. And since we're talking such low numbers here, does that mean that somebody at fifteen percent is like just is that Steven Albert Hawking's? Einstein? Yeah, is that yeah, a, yeah. Einstein right there? Is fifteen percent?
0: I mean, yeah, if 5%, I mean, yeah, yeah. If 10% is like an
1: average person, Einstein's 50% smarter than me because he's working at 15%. (laughs) (laughs) He's probably even smarter than that. But um, yeah, it's just, it's just crazy. And so another theory about where this came from, aside from the self-help thing, is what I mentioned earlier is that the complex nature of brain damage, right? So if somebody gets some sort of localized brain damage, they're not as... It seems in the damage is inconsequential compared to what you might think. So early neurologists were wondering what specific areas of the brain were for, if anything at all, if somebody was able to take some damage in a specific area and not be completely incapacitated, basically. Right. Um... But again, using newer technology um while the consequences may be small, it's been shown that there really is no area of the brain that can be damaged without any consequence, so yes, some are going to result in more you know harm than others, but there' you know if you were to use modern techniques and analyzing the the damage um yeah no no area of the brain. No.
0: Yeah, you
1: can't there
0: damage no an fringe. area with, exactly. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, because ultimately, well, and that would, that would prove that we're using our brain. Because what has to happen there is then the brain has to reallocate. Mm-hmm. Like I said earlier, it has to say, okay, this part was damaged. Let's take what we were doing in that part mm-hmm. of the brain. Let's move it over here, which is ultimately going to lessen everything. But it wouldn't have to do that if you were only using 10%, because it would be like, oh, look at all this space. Right, that would be
1: just a bank of (laughs) of brain gray matter. I'm just going to say, this. Look at all these backup
0: servers we got, yeah.
1: That would mean, if that were true, that would mean that brain damage is expected biologically. Yeah,
0: Yeah, actually. That
1: you were expected, um, you know, during evolution... Every human basically was hurting themselves to the point where they needed ninety percent in reserve mass in reserve. <laughs> that's a lot of brain damage.
0: <laughs> oh my god! I mean, I, I I would venture to say that it is expected. I think we've already proven or not proven. That's quite a statement. We've <laughs> already <laughs> um, we've postulated that uh, you know the brain is is able to recoup from damage suggesting right. that it, it does expect damage, but right. yeah, to expect 90%, uh, the need for 90%. Yeah. Just again is
1: right. Right.
0: That says that. If that yeah. True, just that our, our
1: environment lot. doesn't lead to head damage that would result in 90% damage. And then if you only need 10%, being able to work at full capacity again and taking that amount of damage, it just doesn't make any sense. Um. so I th- this is just a little uh fact that I found I did not know this so the brain is anywhere from like you know maybe I'm at 2% weight of my body whereas somebody much smarter is at like 3% of okay. the body weight of their brain Um, but it uses like 20% of the body's energy <laughs> isn't that wild
0: that's awesome
1: <laughs> it's really cool
0: I mean, it's got to, um, it's, it generate well, in, in, I guess in a sense it generates electricity. Like it's, you know, yeah, it neurons, totally. that whole salt, it's just uh, firing. You know? Yeah.
1: Um, so there's this book, I think it's a book, um, called Knowing Neurons. Uh, this guy or, or girl, I'm not really sure. Gabriel and Tor, um, <laughs> Basically, one of the objectives of this book was to debunk this 10% myth, and I found this really funny to think about. Um, she wrote that kind of in contrary to the myth, that if you were using 100% of the brain at, you know, one given time, um, that that's also not desirable because basically <laughs> you would end up in triggering epileptic seizures if you were in TSP. yeah be- <laughs>
0: You I are, just I imagine mean, like,
1: somebody sitting there thinking so hard <laughs> that they start freaking just like...
0: I mean, that'd be like running your car at full, pe- you know, pedal on the floor. Redlining it
1: until it starts overheating, basically. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, just the, the mental image I got of somebody somehow doing that. Um, so, I found this quote from Scientific American... Um, I don't know. Do you know anything about that source?
0: I've heard it, I think on NPR, but, uh,
1: I don't know. I'm not saying it's not credible. I'm not saying that at all. Actually. I'm just saying, I don't know, but
0: anyway, I'm, I'm speculating.
1: I didn't, uh, I found this interesting. Um, they were just using this simple example to explain, um, how even, you know, during mundane tasks, your brain is working in a very complex manner. So um, they're explaining uh, making a cup of coffee in the morning. So it says, take the simple act of pouring coffee in the morning and walking toward the coffee pot, reaching for it, pouring the brew into the mug, even leaving extra room for cream. The, uh, help me out again, the occipital? Occipital? No, there's no extra P there. Oh, oh. Oh. occipital.
0: Occipital, thank you. Yeah, I added a (laughs) piece.
1: The occipital and parietal lobes, motor, sensory, and sensory motor cortices, some other words I can't say, (laughs) cerebellum and frontal lobes are all active. So you have all these parts of the brain active. A lightning storm of neural activity occurs almost across the entire brain in the time span of a few seconds.
0: Yeah, I mean, think about it. You've got you're planning ahead. You're considering the future by leaving space for cream. Mm-hmm. You are spatially aware of both yourself, where the coffee pot is, where the cream is. Uh, you're controlling the motor functions of walking and reaching, and obviously, the spatial awareness is mm-hmm. critical to that.
1: Your um, your you, involuntary functions that are going on at this time too.
0: Yeah, you're you're breathing. You're looking. You're 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 processing light, uh, and you've got a list of of tasks in your head, the right. steps needed to make a cup of coffee. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's just kind of kind of interesting the it's amazing to think about. it's amazing. Yeah. It's awesome. Um okay, so to finish up here something fun. I was trying to think of nicknames for the brain. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know where this came yeah, from. Yeah, I was okay. Um I'll let you go first and see if you have any that I didn't think of
0: nickname for the brain. yeah or just like
1: the head the brain the head uh, the whole thing
0: I mean the brain the brain case the <laughs> yeah, brain case right in the brain case right in the dome yeah <laughs> dome I got, got dome one. dome piece um oh, there's dome piece oh wow which don't yeah
1: that could be taken a, a different way but yeah in terms of head
0: uh oh uh oh okay go ahead I was just gonna say the re- I already said the lizard brain the reptile brain yeah. referring to the the subconscious part of things.
1: I got noggin.
0: Noggin, that's yeah. a good one. The old noggin.
1: The old noggin. <laughs> I also thought that mind is kind of a slang term in a sense, uh, right? Yeah, saying I guess so. that it's your mind. Yeah. I it's guess that's a, kind of. I don't of, think
0: it's a scientific. I don't think so. Term.
1: Um, and then the last one I had is Noodle. Have you ever heard
0: that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel I think like we would have heard that from our neighbor. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it does feel kind of old school, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like calling it the Noodle. <laughs> uh, yeah. there. I feel like there's one, I'm not going to think of it. Um, oh, it's like, it has to do with racing. And it basically, it's like, it references how we're dumb. Um nah, it doesn't yeah I really reach in there. Sorry, I was really trying to think of it because I, I remember it being funny, but oh well,
1: Yeah, yeah so uh, there we go. That's um, left brain, right brain it's it's a myth, and there are aspects of the whole thing that are true, but overall, you know, saying that there's a bias that people have towards being right brain versus left brain is not necessarily uh, true. Yes, people are different, but it's way more complicated than that.
0: A little piece of trivia or whatever. I just... Well, language is certainly not a strong point of mind, but uh, a word that I've always thought was cool, uh, the word aphasia. Aphasia. And that is, that is the term used. So if you were... It can happen uh, both just the brain degenerating, uh, but also damage as well or certain conditions. But if you if you can't speak anymore because your brain has been damaged or changed or affected in some way, you have speech aphasia. There's, there's more technical terms for it, but aphasia is the term used to describe when a particular function of the brain is fading away or Mm. not happening or Mm. something to that effect. So
1: do I have that because I can't say the word occipital?
0: (laughs) You could argue. Yes. Um, so yeah, I have general life aphasia. So,
1: would you ever say that somebody under the influence of alcohol or anything that is influencing that part of the brain is having aphasia, or is it more of a permanent thing?
0: I think it's more of a permanent thing. You yeah. wouldn't uh, uh, you wouldn't be totally incorrect to say they have temporary aphasia. If, yeah. you,
1: if you put that if you, uh, prefix on right, it.
0: Right. Um, but I would say that that more falls under impairment, right? yeah. temporary right, impairment. Right, right, right. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose the term temporary aphasia is certainly Sounds acceptable. Cool. Yeah, it does. It's a cool word. I like it.
1: Ocipital. I gotta practice. I should have practiced more. It's not hard <laughs> now that I'm embarrassed about it. Well, I, I put an extra <laughs> P in there the first time. I think
0: so, or definitely the first time. But
1: all right, all right, you people. We get you know anti hail cannons and. brain anatomy in the same hour and a half. So (laughs) take it or
0: leave it. Yeah. (laughs) All right. See everybody next week. Yep.